Stephen Molyneux, ladies and gentlemen, is standing however many feet away. When you're up here, there's wires everywhere, so please be careful. People throwing potions at you and shit, so just gotta be careful. Stefan Molyneux is the founder of and host of Free Domain Radio, the largest and most popular philosophical show in the world. With more than 2,300 podcasts, 10 books, 50 million downloads, Stefan has spread the cause of liberty and philosophy to listeners throughout the world. Good chunk of them in this room? Yes? He needs to know this, like, are you familiar with him, or are you not? So he knows how to address the audience, to help him out. Go to MC <laughs> Prior to launch of Free Domain Radio, Stephen built a thriving career as a software entrepreneur and an executive. In 2006, he left his work in the tech industry to devote efforts to the Free Domain Radio. Thank you for doing that. Now a self-identified full-time parent, philosopher, Stefan speaks regularly at Liberty-themed events all over North and South America. The speech is cover subject, I'll just, am I good here? All right, we're. Stefan speaks regularly at Liberty-themed events all over, the, I already read that part. You know who Stefan Molyneux is. Enough of this shit. Give it up for Stefan Molyneux. I'm not doing this anymore. Because uh, I don't want to just write off what he does as shit. I just mean like enough. Like let's hear him talk. That's what I mean. But I do have to point this out because you have a, you have a nice track record. Stefan has been a guest radio on uh, television programs such as RT America is Breaking the Set with Abby Martin, Adam versus the Man with Adam Kokesh, The Kaiser Report with Max Kaiser, and will soon reach the peak of his career when he's a guest on the Mike Salvi's World podcast. Please give it up for Stefan Molyneux. so much for the invitation and uh, so I was trying to figure out what to talk about today because you know I'm always short of topics and you know the central planner in me came out and I was like I better come up with a plan for what it is I'm going to talk about I better make a list and then I shook my head and said wait a minute I'm with a bunch of anarchists <laughs> I don't want to plan this so I can do a speech if you like I got a couple under my belt they're not podcasts they're kind of new uh, or, which would be my slide preference, uh, I can just do a back and forth. Questions, comments, issues, challenges with communicating freedom, all that kind of stuff. What is your preference, my friends? My speech. All right, good. No, okay. Okay, questions. So, look, it's, it's a challenge talking about freedom with the muggles. I mean the status. I mean the deluded. I mean the matrix dwellers. So, we could talk about that, you know, challenges that you have. Like, I... I was listening to the radio the other day. Anybody uh, enjoying the Bitcoin roller coaster? Bitcoins, they come with their own financial barf bag. But uh, do, you, do you actually do refresh that every five minutes? You know, to see what kind of mood you're in. I'm happy, oh God, I'm happy, oh God. And so on the radio they were saying, well, you know, the problem with Bitcoins, you see, is that they're used to purchase weapons. And it's like, do you know what Federal Reserves are used to buy? <laughs> They're used to buy fucking wars, not just weapons. So it seems to be amazing. This is the double standard we always face. Some guy might use a couple of Bitcoins to get a Saturday night special for self-protection, 
Anybody know what the final tally is over the next 50 years for the war in Iraq? $47 trillion. $6 trillion. Do you, anybody remember what the original estimate was of the cost of the war? 50 million and a hand job. Crazy. No, it's mad, right? So this is the double standard, right? You can buy a gun with a Bitcoin, but you can buy an army with a Federal Reserve note, and somehow Bitcoin is singled out as the problem. This is the world we live in. I don't know how people tie their shoes. I don't know how they put one foot in front of the other. They're living in such diluted lower intestine spaghetti strands of irrationality. Anyway, enough of my talking. Who has a question, a comment, an issue that we could jaw about? Can't see anything beyond these landing lights. Yes, sir. What do, what do you think uh, age of consent is? Uh, I know you talk a lot about parenting and things. What do you think the age of consent is for someone in a voluntary uh, parenting situation? Age of consent for what? For, for anything, for self-determination, for something like that. At what point is a child uh, their own person where you're not stepping into Okay, so the question is, at what point is a child able to make his or her own decisions? Um, well, I, I don't think it's a black and white thing. You know, my daughter has really great judgment about what she can do physically. You know, and I keep telling her, I said, Daddy's stuck in the past. Sorry. Like I am, because, you know, when I was around when she was a baby, and I've been raising her uh, with my wife for over four years. So what happens is, you know, she wants to jump from the fourth step and I can remember her not being able to jump from the first step. So I'm like, no, right, but she, so I, and I have to keep telling her, sorry, that's, that's old dad, dad from the past two when, when you were smaller. So she knows, so she can make those judgments herself. She can make judgments about who she wants to be friends with or doesn't want to be friends with. She's fine with that. Um, so I think that, you know, uh, giving the child the trust. I just had Dr. Peter Gray on the show. Uh, he's written a really, really good book called Free to Learn. And he says that we are the least trusting generation of parents in the history of the natural universe at a time when children are outside of government schools about the safest they've ever been. So I think that you would keep that expanding as it goes forward. I think for things like sexuality, because there are such ramifications uh, emotionally, biologically, psychologically, uh, I think that would probably be later. I mean, I don't know the exact date uh, or you know, exactly when it would be, but um, I think it's you know, the maximum amount of freedom that they can handle, which you know, but the important thing is to teach them to make their own best judgments because my daughter, when she's faced with something new, she will come and ask me about it because she knows she doesn't have experience with that, right? You see some freaky ass rainbow berry in the woods and she's like, Daddy, can I eat this? I'm like, let me snort it first. <laughs> Sorry, I thought it was Adam for a sec. Um, but so I will, uh, she will ask me if she doesn't know and I think that's how she's the judge of when she's capable of making those decisions, I think. Uh, any, any, any questions? Anyone else that? Um, so I've noticed a lot on my, on my Facebook feed. Um, it looks like there's a lot of sort of status bashing going on from the from the volunteers community, and I'm just wondering, like, a, a there's a shit status say sort of a, a Facebook thing, and it's uh, I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on how we could be more uh, amiable with the with the status and. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be happy to put down my verbal assaults if they put down their prisons. No, seriously, look, statists are doing a damn fine job of winning, right? They're completely kicking our ass, right? I mean, if the state is a tumor, we're more tumor than person these days. And I, you know, I, I think that we reach out with kindness and with gentleness, like recognizing that they are... Uh, they're programmed, right? Like I just did a show the other night, it's an hour and a half of like grueling statist sandstorm straight to the face, you know, just like, ah! 
it'd feel like one of those ast astronauts, you know, the hot cheek flapping high centrifuge. Every single ridiculous, you know, Somalia, Rhodes, you know, everything that you could imagine, you know, just the boom, 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 straight at you every single time. And it was driving me mad. But they're atheists who've been raised in government schools. Now, if they were Jehovah's Witness and they had spent 12 years, six to eight hours a day being indoctrinated into the Jehovah's Witness religion, they would understand that they had been programmed, that they had been you know, brainwashed or whatever it was, right? But they don't see it in the state. They don't see it, that they've been in a government school for six to eight hours for 12 years and they can't think outside of that paradigm. They don't understand that all that they watched is Coke commercials, so they don't know that Coke's bad for your teeth, right? Because <laughs> you don't see those in Coke commercials, and you don't see the downside of the state in government schools. So I think, and we try to approach it, I think, gently as, as possible, but I think we've got to move to the moral argument as quickly as possible, wherever possible. Because, you know, and I get sucked into this again, you know, what's that Al Pacino line every time I try to get out? Pull me back in. <laughs> Right, so, because they're all uh, arguments from a fact, you know, well, if, who would take care of the poor, the roads, the, the, you know, who will make the windmills, uh, who will uh, catch the rain, who, I don't know, right? And uh, you get back to the ethics of, well, it's immoral to initiate force. I don't care who, pick, who picks the goddamn cotton, slavery is wrong. I don't care how the fruit gets picked, slavery is wrong. And, so, like, I don't care who, who gets married to whom, but rape is wrong. I mean, so, so just go, keep going back to the moral argument, because you know, I think we're kind of in a triage situation. It's late in the day, but it's still very early in the movement, which means we've got to be triaged. You know, like, if you're on a battlefield doctor, he can make it, he can make it, he can't make it, he can't make it. He can, you've got to keep moving, keep moving. You know, and I know this is tough in friendship, so that's another category. But if you're talking to the general person, I would get to the argument from morality. Is it, is it immoral to initiate the use of force? If it is, then you can't create a magic exception called the government. I mean, you can, but then you're in your own little pocket of unreality. Right, so get to the moral argument, and if they're like, whoa, you know, they got that Keanu Reeves face. <laughs> you know, if you're getting some crossed wires, it sparks, you know, they trip, you know, some sort of seizure, then good, then you've, you know, you disrupted some program. But if they're just like, ooh, sailing right past, don't even notice, can't even slow down, I would say move on. Uh, you know, life is, uh, life is short and ignorance is eternal. Yes? Um, we have more choices in soda nowadays than we do in government. And you know, what, you know what budgets are for advertising for soda, Coke, Pepsi? If you were a pitch man for liberty, which I think you are, I think all of us are very thankful for it, what would be your 30 second pitch? For liberty? For liberty. Drugs, hookers, love <laughs> Okay, sorry, if I were talking to another audience, you mean? <laughs> oh, the watermelon you can bang. Um, no, I think so. If I were to say sort of 30, it, it would really depend on the audience, but one I think that it can be quite helpful is to say, hey, that's a nice new cell phone you got there. Uh, do you like upgrading things? Uh, do you like uh, having new things? Uh, would you like to use a piece of technology that's approximately 6,000 years old? Do you like an abacus or a calculator? Uh, do you like smoke signals and carrier pigeons? Or do you like a cell phone? Do you like these things that get upgraded? Did you drive a car recently? Uh, how do you like movies? 3D is cool, right? See, all of these things are new. And the new displaces the old, except in a few places in the world. A few places in the world, the old never gets displaced. 
150 years ago, before the government took over education, 40 kids in a room, 30 kids in a room, and a blackboard. What's changed since then? It's a whiteboard, come on. <laughs> They've upgraded the color. To, so, so, so some things don't change, right? Uh, why, why, does, uh, why are there two months off in the summer for kids? Farming. Yeah, because you know, 90% of Americans are involved in farming. And now what's the percentage? Two, two percent, I think now. Doesn't change, doesn't change. So the things that don't change are the things that are circled by force. Things that are circled by weaponry, things that are violent, don't change. Because violence is a kind of repetitive compulsion. That's post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Just doing it again and again and again in your head. So what if we could have a social organization that advanced as quickly as computers, rather than stayed stuck in the Stone Age? Just a possibility. And that's a way of just having people think about things not like the state is like gravity. People think it's like physics. They think we want to repeal gravity, for God's sakes. They think we want to turn the, the stars into laser pointers and geese into ICBMs. I don't know what they're thinking, but they think we want to change the law of physics, but we don't. We just want to apply the value of voluntarism to uh, everything. I mean, wh why not continue to expand what is possible? Why not continue to expand, you know, what the definition of humanity is? Because in the past, there was no humanity for slaves, right? Just slaves. No humanity for women. We're still working on kids. <laughs> still working on kids. In Canada, you can hit your child from the age of 2 to 12. <laughs> Except in the face. <laughs> Mad. Madness. But so we continue, so that the progress of humanity is expanding the definition of what is moral and what is human. And God help us, we're going to have to extend humanity to politicians and the IRS too, and include them in the moral sphere of virtue, which means to take away their guns lovingly and hopefully uh, peacefully. So that would be, I think, one, one way of approaching it. But there's six million days ways you can do it. Can we spank them on the way? I'm sorry? <laughs> Carla, we talked about your heckling. <laughs> You're only allowed to heckle my hairstyle. All right, so we have another question, comment, issue? Yes, sir. So, uh, say you were, uh, you know, like speaking to a statist and uh, they presented you with like a hypothetical situation and they said, you know, like in the absence of a state, you know, like someone decides to go and kill another person on their private property, right? And then like hauls ass and drags the body back to their own private property. Who would have, uh, you know, like jurisdiction, you know, to come in and investigate like a murder or something like that? Any, any, anything like that. So, anybody know what the death count in Iraq is? They don't know. Nobody knows within a couple of hundred thousand. I've heard estimates from six to eight hundred thousand to one point five million. So if people are really concerned about murder and death and lack of consequences, the last place they'd look to the state is right. So this is important because there is this idea that we have to be as good as the government in some things, right? And, and so if people are really concerned about assholes who get away with murder, then let's take away the guns from the, from the, take away the armies from the sociopaths, right? What do they say? Uh, I was asked years ago, what do we do with the sociopathic murderer in a stateless society? Well, number one, let's not give him an army. We're not aiming to be as good as the state. So, so, if, you know, so that would be my first question, because what they do is they say, well, the state is doing it well now. How would you do it as well as the state, right? 
And, and so that the first thing to recognize that if this is their concern, the last thing they should be is a status. Anybody know the body count, democide, 20th century? People killed by their own governments? 250 million. And they don't even know within a few tens of millions. 250, quarter of a billion people murdered outside of war by their own governments. So that'd be the first thing. The second thing is, how the hell does someone end up being a murderer? I mean, we don't worry that much about polio anymore because we know what causes polio and we have an inoculation against it, right? I don't know, do you, they don't still do that inoculation, do they? Smallpox, polio? No, no. Anyway, so uh, well, we know what causes violence for the most part, other than brain tumors or brain injuries. Uh, violence is caused by uh, child abuse. I mean, this is why somebody becomes a murderer. This is what these sociopaths are doing in Boston. I mean, they just had terrible childhoods and they were not protected or saved by anyone and they live in an uncaring society that doesn't lift a finger to help them and then they turn into really nasty people. So a free society is going to want to make sure that it prevents murder. Who profits from protecting children these days? Nobody. In a free society, uh, children who are traumatized to become violent and destructive are incredibly expensive to society. Incredibly expensive to society. You know, 15% of the, everything you buy is a shoplifting tax because so many people steal from stores, right? Uh, happy people don't steal, well-raised people don't steal, they don't kill, they don't murder. So you're going to have a whole society that is going to place the cost of harming children on the parents. And you wouldn't believe how virtuous people can get with the right financial incentives. You know, the war on drugs costs, what, $20 billion a year? Love to have a vote. Hey, if you're in favor of the war on drugs, you get a check. Uh, sorry, you get a bill for the war on drugs. And if you're not in favor of the war on drugs, you don't have to pay it. So immediately, half the people are going to drop out. Everyone gets a bill, and they're, oh, it's a little more. I don't want to indulge my conscience at that rate, so the more of them would step back. And then the, the last idiot standing gets a, a bill for $20 billion, and I think he would find tolerance for a little bit of weed in his heart after that. <laughs> So, so these things are all preventable, uh, it's just that we don't have a society right now that, that, that allocates the costs of harming children correctly, so, but if, if, you know, this would all be allocated properly, and I've got stuff in my books about this, so I won't go into it in more detail. Anyone else? Oh, 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 you're closer. <laughs> One thing I find mildly encouraging about talking to people about the non-aggression principle, they're usually very accepting until we get the point about what constitutes self-defense. What short of being physically assaulted by somebody do you consider validating self-defense? So uh, if, if a guy looks at me funny, I can't shoot him, right? Okay, uh, if a guy has a gun to my head, I can shoot him. Right? Okay, so, so somewhere in there, there is, you know, you obviously don't want to be a second from dying before you act. At the same time, some guy looks at you funny or some guy's walking behind you, you don't want to turn and blow him away, right? So, um, I, I, there's no clear answer, right? These would be circumstantial based. At the extremes, we could see that, you know, obviously this is justified and some guy looking at me funny is not justified. Uh, so, I, the way that I would imagine is that um, you would not be, you would not face any negative repercussions for self-defense but you would for preemptive, over preemptive self-defense. In other words, where it was not clear that you were gonna be harmed, but you took preemptive and very aggressive action. Because some guy looks at me funny in a bar, I'll just, I can just leave, right? I mean, they don't, have, so you have to be kind of cornered. It has to have been sort of unavoidable and you, you, you shouldn't really have been in the guy's face screaming and spitting and his, you know, whatever, right? So I think that uh, in a free society, these rules would be laid out by the people who would be 
you know, judging whatever you did that was violent, and they would, if, as long as you stayed within those boundaries, then you would be fine. And if you went outside those boundaries very far, you would have a problem. But I think that would be spelled out. I don't know what the exact answer is, because the great thing is you've got millions of people who would be trying to figure this stuff out to be as optimal as possible. But again, a free society, please remember, is all about avoiding and preventing these kinds of situations from coming in, uh, into being. Yes, sir. Can you give a checklist of what it's, uh, when you know you should start defooing? So defooing, anybody? Okay, so defooing is, is uh, the, uh, the argument that uh, if you have uh, very abusive parents or very destructive parents, that you have the choice to be or not be in the relationship. So the analogy, uh, sorry, the analogy. The analogy is, uh, so if you are in an abusive marriage, uh, you have the choice to leave. Uh, and there are a number of psychologists, and I sort of echo that, that say, uh, if you are in an abusive relationship with parents, which is different, right? A, a marriage is chosen, parental relationship is not chosen. Uh, at what point would you have the choice to leave? And I don't have an answer for that. It's sort of like saying when, I mean, obviously, if you're in imminent danger, axe murder or parent or whatever, right? Sure. But um, my argument has always been if you have issues with anyone in your life, you know, friends, family, parents, uh, you, you sit down, you talk about it with them, right? The first virtue is honesty. If you, if you don't have that virtue, nothing else is really possible. But you talk about your issues. You know, isn't it sad that we, we all committed to truth and, and to virtue and to courage, but so many of us will sail through life. I don't think so much in this room, but so many people sail through life without unpacking their hearts to the people around them and, and really speaking honestly and openly about our experience, both positive and negative, of those around us. So I think you stay in conversation, you stay in conversation, you attempt to break through, and at some point you'll just, the, the relationship will, if it's gonna break through, great. If it's not, I think you'll know that. But the important thing is to continue to be honest with people, to continue to say, this was my experience, I don't have a great answer, but I'm troubled by X or I'm happy about Y. Really continue that conversation, and uh, if people respond positively, mwah. if they don't, well, Voluntarism is voluntarism, right? Good answer, good answer. Yes, sir. Recently, I heard some libertarians talk about abortion, and, uh, well, Walter Block was, and he was saying that the libertarian answer to abortion was that you uh, develop a technology that's able to remove the fetus and, and then put it somewhere else and like sustain its life until it can support itself. And for me, I don't get that at all because technology can't be philosophy. Philosophy has to be consistent and able to do whatever, I mean, whatever, without whatever kind of technology ever, advancement or non-advancement. I'm always a little concerned when people say the libertarian answer is. I mean, it's all supposed to be, I think, negotiated within reasonable moral grounds. I mean, abortion is, I mean, I think generally, obviously, is a, is a, is a pretty bad thing to happen. It's, it's a pretty, it's, it's tragedy. And the women I've spoken to who've had it, say, you know, every year on the supposed birthday and all, you know, every day they think it's just, it's wretched. I mean, my goodness, this Marxist relativist assault on the family that's been going on since the second, this in early 19, mid 1960s has been just brutal. Um, reproduction used to be managed much more socially right, in, in terms of social standards and so on, but you get the welfare state come in uh, and the economic incentive to manage reproduction for both young men and young women from a social standpoint, from a social pressure standpoint, from a religious standpoint, or however it was going to be enforced has really diminished, right? So parents take less of an interest in their own kids because they don't have to pay. And so uh, there's been a very great dissolution uh, in the family. And this is one of the things, like, I don't know whether childhood is getting better or worse. 
because um, in some ways it's getting a little better, but in other ways, um, in terms of the fatherlessness and the effects that has on criminality and drug use and addictions and abuse, and I mean, it's wretched. So um, clearly a baby that's born deserves to live. Uh, I, I, I'm not so much about, you know, a couple of cells in the belly morning after RU486 pill. I, I have a tough time seeing that as a potential life. But I think that the, the answer would be, you know, there are, there are women who are pregnant who don't want to raise the child. And there are lots of couples out there, you know, 10% of couples have fertility, significant fertility problems. It seems to me that's a match made in heaven. But why can't we do that? Because you can't pay for a baby. I know, a uh, baby seller. But the reality is that uh, if the woman had financial incentive to bring the, the child to term and she had a contract to say, I don't want to raise this child, but you know, for 20,000 bucks I'll have the baby and you can have the baby. I mean, that seems like win-win for everyone. So I think uh, it, it, it's the absence of a market that usually creates these kinds of problems. Does that help at all? No. from someplace where I feel volunteerism is not popular. Did you ever struggle with ostracism when you were first introduced to the idea? And if so, how did you um, get out of that, of the fear of ostracism hmm. being ostracized? Um, well, I like ostriches, so... <laughs> <laughs> Always not emotional pain with a joke. That's my rule. No, it's, it's uh, you know, you come from a place where volunteerism is not popular. <laughs> Has anybody come from a place outside of this room where volunteerism is popular? Blue Ridge people stand up. Um, <laughs> Parkfest! Um, ostracism is the most painful aspect of, of the truth. I mean, it is the most painful. You know, I grew up with people, I was just asked at lunch about my childhood friendships. Uh, I grew up with people, I uh, was friends with them for 30 years. I asked them to choose between the truth and virtue and me and the rapacious, bloody, murderous state and it's pretty horrible to look to watch them go this way, right? Towards the state. And to turn away from truth, from compassion, from empathy, from reason, from virtue, to chase after that which is destroying them. It is horrible. I mean, it's, it's like somebody choosing a horrible drug over a loving relationship with you. It's not like, it is. It's exactly the same, except that when they choose their drug, you, you'd end up with a huge national debt. So it is, it's incredibly painful. Um, being a voluntarist is like being, you know, this is it's like a gay bar in the 50s, you know, because <laughs> you, you can't really come out a lot of places. But don't worry, we'll be getting the dance moves going in just a moment. But um, it, is, it is very early in the day and there's no way for society to get used to something without a few people getting the shit kicked out of them, frankly. I mean, you just, you stand up, you take your knocks. And it's the same thing that happened with the gay movement, same thing that happened with the suffragette movement, same thing that happened with the abolitionistic movement in the 18th century. You've just got to stand up and all the hounds of hell are going to come breathe fire down your nose and you've just got to stand there and take it because that's the process it seems to me it always has to go through. Uh, I actually, I kind of like it, so I don't know, masochistic or something. No, I, I feel that there's an, an, an enormous amount of, of, of privilege to be very early on. Because later it's a whole lot easier, you know? Is it, is, it, is it tough to be gay in Toronto during a gay pride parade? No, but the guys who did it in the 50s, uh, man, and the men and women who did that, who, who really took the shots, they're the real heroes. Now, again, I mean, it's not easy, but it's a lot easier than it was. So uh, I think we get a lot of honor for that. 
not from the present, unfortunately, but, but it will be there. And at least what we're doing now is much more visible because it's recorded and will be around forever. So I don't have any easy answers. The only thing that I can say is that for the people who choose evil over love, it's heartbreaking, but I'm better off without them. Do you have an explanation of the egalitarian and social welfare impulse in people that might help you argue, you know, kind of like an against me argument, uh, with them so that you might be successful arguing on their terms in terms that uh, sort of understand maybe the psychology or personal history, autobiographical, you know, their history that mm. led them to believe a certain thing rather than rational coming to it rationally. Yeah. Do you think that there's an interpretation of those impulses that will help you argue better against it or convince yeah. you better? How many younger siblings do we have in the audience? Anyone? Who's the youngest? When, when you were a kid, did you hate it that your elder siblings got to like stay up later and they got to get a little bit more pocket money or allowance or whatever you call it here? Was that just my experience? Because I, with people who want things to be equal, I think they feel lower. Right, like Bill Gates doesn't want everyone to have the same income because he's doing pretty well with what he's got, right? I mean, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar doesn't want everyone to be the same height because, you know, his height serves him pretty well. But I think the people who feel diminished, who feel less, they feel that they want to even things out because they stand to gain, right? I mean, if, if you know, the old idea that you've got some flat income, some national guaranteed income of 20000 or $40,000 a year, well, if you're making $5,000 a year, you want that. If you're making $100,000 a year, you don't want that. I mean, again, there's lots of other things, but so I think people who feel diminished, who feels too small, who feel that they don't have opportunities, who've lacked encouragement, who've lacked people who believe in them, who dig in and really get behind them, uh, I think they feel that they need to even things out because they would stand to gain from that and they don't feel that they can do it of their own accord. Or they don't feel that even if they did, it would be a lot of work and they'd never get past that median point. So I think it's a lot of crushed spirits that want to just even out and don't feel that they can do it. And I think that comes from pretty early childhood stuff where, um, you know, there's not a lot of, I mean, human beings are capable of such unbelievably incredible things. And the amount of potential that is squashed through indifference uh, and neglect and abuse and avoidance and TV and video games and all the stuff that just has you do stuff that's entertaining and empty and useless. Um, I think that if, if we have a society that really does get behind people and help really to, to unleash their potential. I was an idiot when I was a kid. Like seriously, I had no intelligence to speak of. None. Uh, and and it w when I had philosophy, I could actually organize my thoughts. They weren't just like catching mosquitoes in a whirlwind. I could actually start to build some structure. You can't build a skyscraper without knowing architecture. And so I think without principles, without understanding, uh, people are just confused and, and they can't build anything in particular and they, they feel helpless in the face. Like, we're like savages in the social universe. We don't understand cause and effect. We think rain dance brings the, the rain and, and the volcano is erupting because the fire god is angry. This is where people are in their thinking. It's wretched. Uh, and this is after 2,500 years of philosophy. My God, it's, it's embarrassing. But, but so the reality is in give people more principles, give people more control over what it is that they can accomplish in their life, uh, give them standards, give them uh, morality, uh, give them principles, right? Non-aggression principle, respect for property rights. Boy, that's not that hard. But if we give them all of that, then I think that they will not feel that they have to use this uh, slithery kind of nasty egalitarian thing just to get something because they'll feel they can earn it themselves. 
Uh, I think that you should uh, keep the beard. <laughs> I, I also have something serious to say, though. Um, I want to push back a little bit on the ostracism question. I understand that if you're in, in an abusive relationship, that you know uh, ostracism is fine. But when it's just a political thing, I still have kind of a problem with ostracism personally. Uh, especially you mean you ostracizing someone else? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Especially because, as a former neocon of about a decade, that was my entire childhood, and into my college years, I took political science, international relations, and I was still a neocon. And now looking back, as a radical libertarian, I feel as though I was kind of left in the dark. Oh yeah. By my libertarian brethren who could have been out there saying, you know, think about this, with a smile, you know? And I feel as though there's not quite enough out there of that. And the idea of, of pushing ostracism, uh, ostracism or just mentioning it even, uh, without the counter saying smile as well, I guess. Um, I don't know, I just have a problem yeah, with yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I certainly did say be friendly up front. Uh, you know, I mean, those of us who have, and I think this would be everyone in the room, we have morality uh, and rational arguments on our side, which means that we go around the world like evil little fairies creating evil in our wake. And sorry, but it's true. Right, so if I invent some radical new laser that cures some horrible leukemia, then everybody who, like once it's been proven to work, every doctor who doesn't use it is a bad doctor. Right, they weren't a bad doctor before it was invented because it wasn't invented. But now it's there. If you don't use it, you're a bad doctor. When we expose people to arguments for morality, when we expose people to the truth, to virtue, then they now have a choice of morality which they didn't have before. Right, so I think we have to be gentle and friendly with that and recognize that we are creating a choice. Right, I mean, I, if somebody told me, hey, you know, click your heels three times and you can float, I'd feel like an idiot for succumbing to gravity all these years. And then I'd lose my bone mass, but that's another story. <laughs> but if you don't know that there's a choice, then I think you have to be gentle with that choice. But I will tell you this, when it comes to ostracism, nobody beats a statist. Right, so let's, no, seriously, let's say you're a statist and you're an asshole, but I repeat myself, no, I'm kidding. So let's say you're a statist and uh, I've given you all the arguments and you can't counteract them and I've given you weeks to think about it, maybe even a month or two, maybe even three, we talk about it, we run. Okay, so, and let's say you simply refuse to, uh, to accept rational arguments, but you also can't find a reason to reject them. Now, if you look at me as the ostracizer, that's completely inaccurate. Ostracism means I'm just not gonna talk to this guy anymore. What does a status do if you disagree with him? What does he suggest? Locks you in a fucking hole. <laughs> now that's ostracism. I mean, he can go anywhere he wants. He just can't come and talk to me, right? But a status says you go in a little hole uh, with a, a big beefy guy uh, and, and he will lock you up for years. That's not ostracism. That's enslavement. That's, that's torture. That's brutality. So let's not forget the reality that a status can disagree with us, that's fine. If we disagree with the status, guys kick in your door and take you to a hole in the ground and lock it up and throw away the key. So when it comes to ostracism, they are not on the sunny side of the street when it comes to that. I don't choose to have people in my life who want me thrown in jail for disagreeing with them. 
I don't choose to have people in my life who will call an airstrike of cops down on my house because I disagree with them. I do not choose to have people in my life who are willing to cheer the initiation of force against me for following my conscience. I gotta have some standards. Next. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I feel whenever I uh, talk about these ideas with people, it's a lot just preaching to the choir, and I'm trying to use it, just every argument, and it just continues to be preaching to the choir. Do you have any suggestions? Maybe have wait, wait. But when you say preaching to the choir, you mean you're talking to people who already agree with you? Yes. Well, talk to different people. I mean, what can I say? I mean, in terms of only reaching. Oh, only reaching certain people? In terms of it not being able to persuade. Right. Yeah. Well, because you think you have control over other people and their receptivity. You have a little bit of influence. You know, you go up and grab people in the subway and scream voluntarism into their face. You may not be batting a thousand when it comes to bringing people to the movement. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you're just nice and, you know, just send a couple of Facebook things, but it's no big deal, you know, I'm just not again, you know, I'm not really for uh, shooting people who disagree with you, but it's not a big deal to me, uh, right? So, um, uh, it's somewhere in between the two, right, where you have, you have conviction, and I think the most, the most important thing is that, you know, the question is why, why, why are we doing this stupid stuff? Like, why are we here? I mean, I don't mean the existential on the planet. I mean, what the fuck are we doing in this basement, <laughs> you know, <laughs> talking about uh, how people are going to hate us for telling them the truth? I mean, this is an insane thing to do. So why, why are we doing it? I mean, I know why I do it, because working is hard. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I do it because I... I benefited from all, all the people who did good stuff in the past, right? We have some free trade, we have some technology, we have airplanes and, you know, all these great things that came from people taking on the vested powers in the past. You know, we have some racial equality, we have some equality between the genders, we have tolerance, if not encouragement, for homosexuality, which is wonderful. Yay, you know, fantastic. So I, I you know, the pay it forward kind of thing. I think if people get that you want the world to be a better place, you know, like, God, People say, oh, you libertarians, you don't care about the poor. It's like, we're not ladening down with debt. We're not sending them off to goddamn wars. We're not creating a permanent underclass. We're not trapping them in shitty schools where they graduate unable to read. We do care about the poor, and that's why we want the state out of their way. Can you pass it back? Um, regarding the electoral process, is there an ideal relationship that anarchists should have with that? Is it something that could be reformed to mm. work with? Yeah. Or should it be dismissed and subverted completely? Yeah. Well, the ideal, the question is what relationship should an anarchist have to the electoral process? The ideal relationship is it should be a fucking horror story you read to your grandchildren where they go, ooh, I can't believe people ever live like that. <laughs> is just another government program. I mean, look at the libertarian, just don't take my word for it. Look, look at the libertarian platforms. You can find them online for the past 42 years, 71, I think they started, right? Past 42 years, they have been promising us freedom if we give them lots of money and go vote for libertarians or Ron Paul or Rand Paul or 
Ronald Reagan or whoever, you know, Barry Goldwater, whoever the libertarian de jure is, they tell you uh, that they're very confident that they're going to get you freedom if you send them 20 bucks, count some lawn signs and scratch something in a box somewhere. And uh, I'm an empiricist, right? I come from a business background, which means I don't care what you say, show me the facts. Show me the facts. And the government was uh, about 15% its current size when libertarianism failed to control it. Now, come on, if a guy can't lift 10 pounds, there's no point tossing a 100 pound weight at him, right? So uh, I'm, I'm all, you know, hey, if politics could set us free, fantastic. No ostracism, no conflict, no fights, no nothing. I think that would be wonderful. I just don't see the evidence. They always say, do this and we're gonna become free. Uh, and then you, what you end up is with a bigger government. But how is that distinguishable from any other government program you name? You know, give us your money, we're gonna help the poor. Oh shit, now we've got more poor. You know, oh, give us your money, we're going to educate the young. Oh shit, the young are retarded now and then uneducated, right? So, uh, give us your money and we'll get you political freedom. Oh shit, the government's five times bigger and there's a huge national debt and $80 trillion of unfunded liabilities and 1900 wars going on around the world. So, I just have, uh, I think we have a right to be a little bit skeptical and say maybe we can put our resources uh, somewhere else. So, I look in the family, I look at peaceful parenting, uh, non-aggression principle with regards to children and all that kind of stuff. I think Boy, if they'd started that 40 years ago, we'd have some fantastic examples of how freedom and, and uh, voluntarism worked in the world. But right now, we've wasted our time in politics, so I look for alternatives. Outside of the bounds of uh, religion and the state, what's your thought about marriage? About marriage? About marriage. Marriage is hot. Um, <laughs> well, Marriage is generally has evolved out of the fact that we have these ridiculously retarded children. I mean, it's embarrassing how stupid our children are. And I, I say this as a child who was himself stupid. We have like, a, I think other than whales and elephants, we have like the longest, most ridiculous, 25 years it takes for the brain to become mature. I mean, so it's, it, it, the amount of investment that human beings have to put into raising their children is almost second to none in every other species in the planet. And that's partly because, you know, we're born early, you know, we're supposed to, we're actually supposed to be another trimester in the womb, it's just the, the big giant head, and I count myself in the melon head category. A little, a little hard to get out the hoo-hoo when you've got a head the size of a bowling ball. So, uh, so we're born early, we have this ridiculously extended childhood, so the reality is that it takes a huge amount of, and I say this as a stay-at-home dad too, a huge amount of energy and commitment is taken to, to raise children. And so the, the, the marriage contract, the marriage idea is, hey, let's have a kid and I will stay. And I, I think the reason it's important, you, the reason you get married with your tribe, your friends, your family present, is you know, if you're just dating someone, you've been dating for a couple of weeks and you say, eh, I don't really think I like her, your friends will be like, oh, okay, so don't see her, right? But if you, said, if you publicly said, I'm gonna stay with this person till we're both fucking dead, and we're gonna have 19 kids and I'm gonna take care of them all, and then if you go to your friends and you say, I'm not really that happy, what are they gonna say? You get back in there, you know, you get back in there. What's that, um, oh, I'm trying to think that Ray Liotta film about the, um, the gangsters where, uh, Goodfellas, yeah, so Goodfellas, right? The guy's like, he's got this woman on the side and the other mafia guys come over, it's like, hey, you can have the guy on the side, but you're gonna get back to your wife, you do wife, you know? Right, so the, fa the, the social pressure is to stay together, absent, you know, destructive abuse and addictions and so on. So when you publicly say, it's a public contract that says to people, if I'm gonna screw this up, help me fix it. 
as opposed to it's just a fling, so it doesn't really matter. So I think that's you know it's for the community to know how serious you are and help you fix it, and also to make sure that you have at least a verbal contract with community approval for the raising of children. I think from that standpoint, it's very important. The government involvement is just the usual shit, right? <laughs> Is that a high five or five more minutes? Or oh, last question? Okay. Thanks, everyone. By the way, great question. Does a parent have the right to beat their child, or more specifically, does somebody else have the right to come onto their property and point guns at them for doing so, or to threaten to lock them in a cage, or threaten to take their children away from them? So the question is, does the parent have the right to beat the child? Well, I think the non-aggression principle answers that. No, does anybody beat a child in self-defense? Discipline. Discipline. <laughs> yeah, that's like calling government school education. Um, <laughs> no, listen, we, we, don't, we don't appeal to history or emotion in this. We appeal to principles, right? Striking a child is the initiation of force. Now, we're either going to create an exception <laughs> for children. It is. Striking a child is the initiation of force. Now, we're gonna, we can create some exception if we want, but then we no longer have universal principles. And we've created an exception for the most vulnerable people in society. In other words, you can't hit an adult because that's wrong, but children, but the children who can neither protect themselves nor leave, well, you can hit them, right? So you, you can't have lower moral standards for children than you have for adults. That's insane, right? I don't mean everyone who believes it is insane, but as a principle, it's insane. And so, yes, striking a child is the initiation of force. It's immoral. Now, I say this with the full understanding. I mean, the statistics are still horrible. Percentage of parents who still hit their children. Anybody know? 80, 80 to 90%. Percentage of British mothers who strike children less than one year old. 80 number of moms in America who hit their children three or more times a week when the children are six years of age and under. Two-thirds. So tell me, a child being hit by his primary caregiver, by his nurturer, by his sustenance provider, by his loving arm and harbor in the world, being hit 150 to 200 times per year, do we not think this is going to have an effect on our perception of violence as an adult? Do we not think... Do we not think that when the government says we need to control you or you do bad things, that this is not an echo of our, our histories? Or when uh, somebody looks at the government and says, well, they're allowed to have different moral rules because mom would hit me for hitting other people. And then she'd be in the right and I'd be in the wrong. So they're allowed to tax, but I'm not allowed to steal. They're allowed to counterfeit, but I'm not allowed to counterfeit. It all comes from the child at the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Now, I don't believe that most, I think most people are in a state of nature with regards to this issue, not again hopefully in this room because we get the principles, but I think that most people uh, have yet to understand the moral argument, they have yet to understand the scientific argument, the destructive effects, spanking shaves off IQ points, spanking creates aggressive tendencies, uh, spanking causes addictions and dysfunction, uh, spanking uh, causes oppositional defiance, uh, spanking disrupts social uh, capacities and so on, so they, they may not know the science and they may not know the ethics, which is again what we're doing when we're providing these arguments is we are sadly creating immorality in our wake and people don't usually like that. I don't believe that the initiation of force, oh sorry, I don't believe that uh, going and hitting the parents is the way to solve the problem of the cycle of violence. I think, you know, education and consequences is the way to do it. I'm a big fan of privatizing the family. 
because I think if you can't privatize the family, you can't privatize anything. And privatizing simply means that the family is a voluntary institution. The family is a voluntary institution. If you love your parents and, and they love you, fantastic, wonderful. If your parents beat the crap out of you, ignored you, were drunk half your childhood, you don't have to see them. That's voluntarism. You cannot improve something without making it voluntary, without in injecting the principles of voluntarism in it. You can't go to, to the post office and say, hey, everybody should just do a better job. They don't care. They can't get fired. Right? We have this Judeo-Christian ethic, honor thy mother and thy father. Uh, where's the honor thy children? Oh, sorry, children, children don't vote and they don't pay tithe. So, so we need to, I think, promote voluntarism within the family. That is the only thing that will reliably improve the quality, right? If you want to improve the quality of the post office, what's the one thing you've got to do? Privatize it. Make it voluntary. That's quality. There is no quality without voluntarism, and that's my argument uh, with the family. My daughter is going to owe me zero, nothing. My entire privilege and joy as a parent is the time I get to spend with my daughter, but she owes me nothing. She doesn't have to come to my deathbed. Uh, she doesn't have to uh, write me a birthday card. She doesn't owe me a damn thing. I chose to be a parent. She didn't choose to be my child. My, I live, hopefully, I'll end with this. And, and every day, literally, I, you know, I get up with my daughter and I will say to myself, when, I'm, when I was shaving, I don't want to do now, but I, I will say that my daughter didn't choose me, but my goal and my hope is to be the kind of parent that if she could choose any parent in the world, she would choose me. And this is the same thing with my wife, right? So she could walk out on me tomorrow. But I try to be the kind of husband to her, I try to be the kind of friend to my friends, I try to be that if anyone could choose anyone to be their husband, their friend, their father, that they would choose me. That's the greatest voluntarism. Now, my wife has that choice, my daughter doesn't, which is why it's even more important for me to live that way with her. Thank you, everybody, so, so much. Stephen Malone. One more time. Great job, Dave. Oh, thank you.